So uh, the gist of the message today is that we are just going to make a handful of observations about this passage uh, beyond the obvious that you may have pronounced some of those names differently from how I did just now. Uh, I don't necessarily know the right pronunciation, I just do it by sounding it out um, and try to sound confident. Uh, but, um, uh, but we're going to make a handful of other observations, some a little bit further below the surface than that, um, about this, uh, this passage that traces Jesus's uh, what's called a genealogy, um, sort of the family tree uh, from Abraham down to Jesus. And first of all, the observations um, that the passage itself uh, self-consciously makes at either end. So the passage, uh, we can uh, sort of ask all kinds of questions of this text, but the passage actually gives us two things, one at the start and one at the end, that it asks us to pay attention to. And the first is this, uh, that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham by descent. Abraham, David, Jesus is a pretty important thing. And actually David is at the centre of that. Uh, And the second observation, number two, is uh, that there is something significant in here about there being 14 generations from Abraham to David, then 14 again from David to the deportation to Babylon, and then 14 again uh, from there until Christ, as verse 17 uh, makes quite clear that's uh, apparently significant. But I don't think it's significant in a way that would be obvious certainly not to me and and perhaps not to you as well. Uh, We're going to make two other observations after that, uh, which uh, come a little bit uh, closer to some of the questions that you might have asked. Uh, So, or or other questions you may come across in conversation uh, or in further reading. So, there is another genealogy, this is point three up there, there's another genealogy for Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, uh, which contains some differences from this genealogy. Uh, And so I'll point out those differences for you and offer some uh, potential explanations for for why that might be the case. Um, And finally, and most significantly, there is the inclusion of five women's names uh, in this genealogy of Jesus. Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, Ruth also in verse 5, Uriah's wife, whose name is Bathsheba, uh, in verse 6, and then Mary down at the end, and, uh, and, and we're going to spend a bit of time thinking about that. So first of all, Abraham, David, Jesus. Uh, this is what uh, it flags right at the very beginning. Uh, if you've done a little bit of Bible reading, uh, then um, uh, in, across other parts of the Bible, uh, then the fact that Matthew includes a genealogy or a family tree uh, at the very beginning isn't actually all that surprising. Uh, Because the first genealogy in the Bible appears as early as chapter 4 of Genesis. That's chapter 4 of the whole Bible. Uh, And then all the historical books up to the time of Jesus uh, trace this same continuous line from Adam, uh, showing an awful lot of interest, deliberately so, in who fathered who, fathered who, fathered who. Uh, And there is a line that you can follow. In, In fact, in many ways, Matthew doesn't need to spell it out, but it's not strange at all that Matthew would begin there. Uh, What is interesting is that while most of those uh, other prior genealogies uh, just pick up where the last one left off and then pick up again where the last one left off, this one reaches back. Uh, So uh, Matthew begins by reaching back and highlighting a couple of specific names, uh, particularly Abraham and David. And there is a point to this, and it's something like this, uh, that, that Jesus is a very Jewish boy. He is very Jewish. He's got very strong 
credentials. And this is important for understanding all of the Bible because you and I, for the most part, I don't know all of your heritage and racial sort of descent, um, but uh, most of us uh, are not Jewish by descent uh, and certainly not by faith. Um, and, um, and so, but this is a helpful thing for us modern Australians to appreciate that the first way to understand Jesus is that he is the saviour of the Jewish people. He is the one that they were expecting and no one else was looking for him or expecting him or particularly even interested in him in the first place. Uh, and, and that is where our interest in him uh, begins to grow. It's from a place of coming in as foreigners to paying attention to what is going on with these people who are very excited about this man named Jesus. Uh, in the first century, nobody outside the Jewish race would care one speck that Jesus was connected through family to Abraham or to David, in a similar way that none of our neighbours would find that particularly meaningful or probably even very interesting today. I mean, the name David in particular just sounds like it's a regular name, isn't it? Um, so imagine if you're trying to tell your mate that Jesus is uh, one to believe in, that Jesus is fair dinkum, uh, you might have conversations about whether the Bible is scientifically or historically accurate or whether uh, the Bible presents a compelling philosophical way of viewing the world. Uh, you might share a personal testimony about how Jesus saved you from sin or gave your life meaning, but you're probably not going to lead with Jesus was descended from Abraham and expect that to mean anything. To your friend. But to a first century Jewish audience under Rome's thumb, this was like catnip. You know, this is very fascinating stuff. Uh, the two names, Abraham and David, have their own special significance. They're sort of, you know, the, the, both of their stories are told in great detail over spans of chapters, but each of them kind of have a thing that we remember. Abraham was a man who represents uh, sort of faith and promise. Uh, and David was the king, really the very best king, the king by which all the other kings are measured. Um, and so Abraham is the father of promise. Do you remember, this is uh, one of the first words we get about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, which we just looked at uh, in term, terms 2 and 3, I think, here at church. Um, the Lord said to Abram, this is before his name was changed to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then that is the framework for understanding the rest of Abraham's life as these things unfold uh, and, um, and it's a way really of understanding the whole rest of scripture from the life of Abraham on is that God has set Abraham apart, he has called him out to use this man, to bless this man and bless this man's family and to through his, this man and his family bless all the nations and the peoples in the earth and we're still, you know, as you read on the Bible, you're waiting for this to come to fruition and you see like little hints but we're still kind of waiting as we read on and then there's David down the same line but something like 14 generations later there's David who was the king uh, and uh, he also has a promise that is made to him second Samuel chapter 7 promise that God made through the prophet to David when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your offspring after you and who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Does it feel a little bit like um, I will bless you and those who come from you? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom 
forever. Now, between Abraham and David and Jesus, just in the book of uh, in Matthew chapter 1, there's about 40 other names, and none of them are the Messiah or the Christ. But at least there is hope. Uh, we're sort of we're following this line looking for the one. And uh, with it being uh, 14 whole generations since what the passage calls the deportation to Babylon, as in since Israel has, has um, last had one of their own kings on their throne, time is overdue for this king that they're looking for. Uh, you might even say the time is ripe. So let's look then at this 14, 14, 14. Do you remember that last verse of today's reading? I've got it up here. Matthew 1 verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, there's a lot of interesting things about this. Uh, the very fact that the author finds this numerical, numerical symmetry noteworthy is, I, th- I think, interesting. Uh, it's, he pauses and so we should pause too and I, I think we naturally and instinctively do. And think, oh, Why is he pointing this out? And he doesn't explain why. Uh, There's also the fact that if you actually count the names, it's not exactly 14 every time. Uh, There's 14 names in the first block, then 15 names from David to the deportation, and then back to 14 names again in the last block. What is going on? There's also the fact that if you place this genealogy alongside the other genealogies in the Old Testament and read them together, you can see that here and there Matthew has actually skipped a generation or two to, he's kind of cooking the books fudging the numbers a bit to get it to 14 or or near enough too. And then why on earth 14? Why? There are other symbolically significant numbers in the Bible, 3, 7, 40, uh, to name a few, or they're the big players anyway. 14 isn't one of them. What's the answer to the puzzle? And I've done a bit of reading, um, but I'm not going to share everything I've read. I'll boil it down to this, um, that although Matthew makes the observation in verse 17 and points out that this is an interesting thing, uh, there's a symmetry to 14, 14, 14, and although he even shaves a bit off the edges to make it fit and uh, he pauses specifically to point it out in verse 17, he doesn't really hang anything off of it. Do you see? He's, he he kind of points it out um, and doesn't say, therefore... Um, this is proof of anything in particular. It's as if he's pointing it out and saying, isn't that interesting? Isn't it kind of even beautiful? And isn't beauty in itself, in a way, to a point, a little bit compelling? It kind of is when things just fit and come together. By the way, his difference in numbering, 14, 15, which he calls 14, and then 14 again, um, that's actually uh, reasonably permissible in, in, in the Jewish numbering system. Sometimes they counted inclusively and sometimes they didn't. Um, and so uh, it, it, it's not really that much of a fudging of the numbers. The fact that he skips a couple of generations, again, to his Jewish audience, reasonably conventional. But it is interesting that he's, he's deliberately tried to make this number 14 fit. But I think... I think his final observation is simply something like this. There's a sort of a neatness about it, isn't there? Or as I said early, uh, I think he might be even saying there's a sort of a ripeness about it. The wait for the Davidic king has been long. And could this be the end? The time seems right 
or about right. But then his arguments really for Jesus being the Christ hang on an awful lot more of, than of just 14, 14, 14. Uh, and, um, and he becomes very convincing uh, as he makes his point further on. I know we're doing just a little bit of head learning, but I think this is helpful stuff um, to think about. Matthew versus Luke. So the third point down, there is a difference between this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 um, and the one that you find towards the end of Luke chapter 3. Um, and uh, there's a few differences. One of them uh, is quite simple. While Matthew starts back in the past and tells the story forwards to Jesus, Luke starts with Jesus and, and works his way back. That's not a big difference. Um, there's a, another difference is that while Matthew starts back with Abraham, Luke, when he travels back, goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God. Um, and then there's this other difference that between David and Jesus, Matthew and Luke feature a completely different set of names. And that's a lot. Um, it's not just one or two names. Uh, you can't just explain it away by saying, oh, this one might have been a nickname here, but all the rest add up. It's a completely different set. Sometimes, we'll point, uh, sometimes people will point these things out as a contradiction, uh, and it's fair to ask that question. Uh, sometimes a difference is so small that you can barely call it a contradiction. Um, it might just be a change of emphasis or a misunderstanding or, or, or some other um, watertight explanation but sometimes the difference is massive like this and it's massive but in times like this it also seems a little bit like the the difference is so big there must be some other explanation could could Matthew and Luke have like they're not very bright are they if they couldn't have contrived to at least get it close um, if, if it is a mistake there must be some other explanation and there is in fact, there's a couple. I'm going to give you the one that I, I think is probably the best. Uh, and the one uh, also, sorry, I'm not the brains here, the one that also I'm told uh, is, uh, is the most commonly accepted explanation at the moment. But it's convincing. Uh, so let me begin like this. Matthew and Luke are the two authors uh, who include Jesus' genealogies. Um, they are also the two authors that tell the story of Jesus' birth. Uh, Mark and John don't tell that story. Uh, the only two authors who take pains to teach, remember, the virgin birth of Jesus, that Jesus is the son of Mary and not actually the son of Joseph by flesh, um, are also the ones that tell the story of Jesus' genealogy and they run it through Joseph, his father. Have you ever wondered why they would point out Jesus' lineage through Joseph when both of them are the ones who really come out to say Joseph isn't his father by flesh? And the answer is this. In, in Matthew's case, his, his point about connecting Jesus to David is largely theological and symbolic. So he takes David's son, Solomon, who isn't David's first son, but the son who becomes king. And so uh, he is taking that line, the line, of, uh, the line of the throne, and running that down uh, through Joseph. And he wants to show a straight line of legitimacy from the throne to Jesus. So through Joseph, under the old regime, Jesus would have had that claim. Except that 14 generations ago, David's descendant was removed from the throne and Herod is now sitting there as a puppet under Caesar. And he's not from that line. 
But in Luke's gospel, the genealogy uh, begins like this. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Remember, he's flagging right up that we don't really believe he was Joseph's son by birth. Uh, And Joseph was the son of Heli, um, as opposed to, now I can't even remember, uh, the son, uh, Joseph's father, who's named uh, in Matthew. Uh, Luke acknowledges there in the brackets that Joseph wasn't the true father of Jesus and then lists Joseph's father as a man called Heli, uh, Jacob, sorry, is is Joseph's father's name uh, in the book of Matthew. And the theory is that since there was no strict word for son-in-law, that Joseph is listed here in the Gospel of Luke as the son of his father-in-law. So Heli is actually Mary's father. Uh, And um, And so in the Gospel of Luke, what is shown is Mary's family tree, which also happens to circle back onto David, which does mean technically they're related, but a very, very long time ago, something like 28 generations back. Um, So they're not first or second or third cousins. Um, And so that's the explanation that I... I, appears to be pretty convincing. Uh, Matthew is talking about how Jesus uh, ought to be the rightful heir of the throne... Uh, certainly the one that the Jewish people were looking for and expecting, uh, whereas Luke is pointing out this, uh, these sort of human roots that take Jesus back through the line of Mary. There's at least one other pretty good explanation we could talk about it um, uh, if you want to have a chat with me. Uh, but let's look at the, end of, at the end, at the really interesting stuff. Why do five women's names feature in this list and who are they? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife doesn't even get her name, though we know it, Uh, and then Mary. Uh, There's nothing noteworthy at all about a list of men's names in a genealogy. It's just the way it was always done, nothing to observe. Uh, The introduction, though, of five women's names uh, is such a cultural anomaly, it is absolutely noteworthy and deliberate, and Matthew is asking us, begging us to ask the question, why? And I'll begin by taking us back to Genesis 3. This is a very general, sweeping sort of observation before we get into the detail. Adam and Eve have together, in Genesis chapter 3, just sinned. Adam and Eve have doomed the human race to a spiral of death and decay, and immediately this happens. The very next words spoken in Genesis chapter 3, after um, the man and the woman and the serpent have been cursed by God, it says, "...the man called his wife's name Eve." because she was the mother of all living. It doesn't uh, directly sort of cross-link over to, um, uh, to Matthew chapter 1, um, but it does remind us that although it's the men who get named as fathers, from the very beginning, the woman is acknowledged as the one who bears the children and, in fact, the one who carries with her the hope of the human race. And that is, you know, although the convention is to name the fathers, it is a strong theme throughout all of Scripture. Uh, Although part of the point of Matthew's genealogy is that Jesus represents a very Jewish hope, remember he's a very Jewish boy, Uh, the point is not racial. And the point is not racial purity. And that's made really clear because in this list of five women's names, at least two and maybe three of the women are foreigners who are married in. Now, if you're trying to whitewash a family tree, you don't highlight by name the ones who are foreign. So Rahab 
was a Canaanite living in Jericho. Uh, She was the first one to defect to the Hebrew side when the Hebrews first stormed the Promised Land uh, back in the book of Joshua. Uh, Ruth uh, was a Moabite woman uh, who married in uh, to uh, who married a Hebrew man, uh, and it talks about Uriah's wife. Now, whenever we hear about Uriah, this uh, Uriah was one of David's uh, bodyguard. Uh, whenever we hear about Uriah, he is called Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was a foreigner, so his wife may or may not have been a Hittite as well. She had a Hebrew name, so maybe he he came in and then he married into the. Uh, the Hebrew race, but, but we don't really know. Uh, so she may have been foreign as well, though that one's not as clear. But the, the message to the Jewish people, at least as far back as Abraham, was that they would be a blessing to all nations and that through them people from every nation would come to worship God. And the Bible makes no argument that any one race is superior to any other race because before his sight we are all equal and under him we can all worship him. Uh, the Bible does make the argument that God in his own wisdom and for his own reasons chose the Jewish people to achieve his missions on earth. Uh, but he makes it clear that he didn't choose the Jewish people because of their strengths, but in spite of their weaknesses to show his grace. And that same dynamic is true of all modern Christians. We are chosen and accepted by God, not because of our goodness or our purity or our smarts, but in spite of our badness and our impurity and our foolishness left to our own devices. God uses the weak to shame the strong. And so this isn't a racial thing. In fact, very deliberately, it's not that. But there's something else here too, because each of these women are highlighted uh, for another reason. There's something that they all share in common. There's a, there's, a, there's a hint of disgrace that goes with every name. Every one of them carries some sort of reproach or shame. And there's some serious stuff back here too. This isn't just, you know... Um, uh, like conservative people being a bit prudish and thinking, oh, someone you know had a had a wild teenage years or something. There's some pretty um, pretty disturbing stuff. Tamar is the most disturbing of all. You can read about her. I think it's Genesis chapter 38. Uh, Jada, uh, Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah uh, is uh, the head of one of the tribes, the tribe that David came from, the tribe that Jesus came from. He's a uh, his, his name looms large throughout the Bible. Um, and yet, his legacy is this, that Judah had a son who married a woman named Tamar. Judah's son was wicked and he died. And Tamar was left without a child. Now, it was their, uh, it was their rule that then uh, ta- one, of ta- uh, one of Judah's other sons would then take Tamar as his wife uh, and, um, and produce children through her, for her. Uh, but the next son down did not do that, and he dies as well. And so Judah has another son, a young son, and he says to Tamar, Tamar, I'll keep my word to you, hang around. When he's old enough, you will get my third son. And then when he's old enough, Judah does no such thing, and Tamar is left destitute, no child, no support, Um, and hanging onto a promise that's never going to come true, and she can see it. 
And so here's what Tamar does. When Judah's wife dies, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and lingers around on the path where Judah's walking. And Judah sees this prostitute while he's in his grief for his wife and he takes her and sleeps with her. And he impregnates her. And he doesn't tell anyone about it. But then when she becomes pregnant, she discloses to everyone that the child is Judah's. And he's utterly ashamed, totally embarrassed. Uh, but uh, in all of this, although Tamar has done this you know, um, morally dubious thing, um, she's also acted out of uh, necessity. And she's actually insisting on the faithfulness of the man who has owed her all along. And so it's, it's strange for us, uh, and Tamar is, uh, she's a tricky character for us to get our head around, but this is the name, the first name that's really deliberately listed in the genealogy. Rahab was a prostitute. That was her profession. Um, as I said, she was, uh, she was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, uh, and she was, um, uh, and uh, before uh, the the nation of Israel uh, came into the promised land, uh, Rahab defected to them, and she married into them, and she was redeemed. But that's her background. Ruth, if you read, the, there's a whole book in the Bible called Ruth that tells the story. It's only four chapters, and it is, it's meant to be a girly book in the Bible. It is really one of my favourites. I love. It. And I'll preach it again one day. I've already done it, but it's, it's been too long. Ruth is, is a ripper of a read. Ruth uh, is just honourable through and through. But she's a Moabite woman. And the Moabite women, or, or the Moabite race, has been condemned by God because they had treated Israel as utter enemies. And in particular, the Moabite women had uh, seduced the Israelite men back in the day. Um, and so that was what they were known and notorious for, even though Ruth uh, behaved always for herself only with absolute purity. There is a questionable event where she spent the night on the threshing room floor uh, with a man that wasn't yet her husband, and um, there's sort of uh, a kind of a grey question mark over what may have happened then, but, uh, but the story uh, of Ruth uh, and the man she married, Boaz, uh, is of two just utterly pure people uh, that, um, that I'm convinced that uh, it's, a, it's a story of wholesomeness uh, rather than questionableness. But the question lingers. And then there's Uriah's wife. As I said, Uriah uh, was one of David's bodyguard, one of his most faithful uh, servants, uh, a warrior who fought and, uh, and uh, put his life on the line for David. And then while uh, Uriah and the army are out at war one day, David looks out his window and sees Uriah's wife uh, bathing and he takes her and sleeps with her and impregnates her. And when he finds out she's pregnant, to cover up his sin, he invites Uriah back from the front lines and gets Uriah drunk so that he might go and sleep with his wife and, uh, and, and cover things up. And Uriah is so faithful that even though he's force-fed too much alcohol by the king, he instead sleeps at the king's gate instead of even going back to his own home because he can't bring himself to sleep with his wife while his own uh, countrymen and comrades are fighting on the front lines. He is too honourable for that. 
And so David hatches a plan. He sends Uriah to the front lines, has him essentially killed by the enemy um, so that he can cover up his own sin, take his wife Bathsheba uh, as his own uh, and try to cover up his sin. Uh, and then uh, and then Solomon, that, that child dies actually, and Solomon is her next child down. But this is the disgrace. And then we have Mary, pure virginal Mary, uh, which is how we know her and revere her. And yet, can you imagine the eyes of all the people around her in that day? Uh, this young woman, pregnant, out of wedlock, covered with shame. And insistent that, no, 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 really, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Unbelievable. And certainly shameful. And it was a slur that people continued to use against Jesus in his adult ministry. Uh, that um, uh, that uh, he was born in sin and steeped in shame. You get the impression at the end of reading this, because of the things highlighted, that Jesus is too good, much too good, even for his own bloodline. Uh, and so we read this bloodline, and it's, it's barely a list of credentials of you know, good, pure, holy people, although none of the women in here really are covered in shame by the end of the stories. Every one of them is redeemed and, uh, and upright, and it's the men, really, who are, who are the scumbags around them. Um, but very clearly... Jesus is too good for his own bloodline. And in this there is hope. Uh, because everything that Jesus touches becomes pure by him. And so there's a story. I'm just going to tell one story in closing. There's a story in the New Testament uh, of Jesus walking on the road and a leper comes to him. A leper is someone uh, with a skin disease. They are not to be touched in case you catch the disease from them. And the leper says to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. And Jesus touches him, the thing that he must not do. And instead of the leprosy crossing from the leper to Jesus, the purity of Jesus extends to the leper. And just as Jesus' family line was far from pure, uh, God in his grace and his strange wisdom uh, sent Jesus through this bunch of people to save another bunch of people who were really no better. So we are reminded in this story uh, that is full of a bunch of uh, very strange names uh, and confusing rationales at times uh, that God really is a God of grace. Uh, God is not uh, too proud or too pure for us, uh, but he uh, has come to us. He extends peace and grace to us, uh, and we are his by his work, not by ours. Let's pray and give thanks. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you uh, for the truths you feed us through it, even though... Uh, as we first read Matthew 1, I think for most of us it feels uh, overwhelming and a bit confusing, uh, maybe even boring. Uh, but we thank you that in there, uh, through Matthew, you have dropped us hints not just of theological things and interesting facts, uh, but a strong hint of your grace.
uh, that you are a God uh, who is not too proud, uh, though you are very good. Uh, you love us and are gracious to us. And none of us have sunk too far away from your reach. So we thank you for your grace. Help us uh, to believe in you and your goodness. Uh, may we have your Holy Spirit in us. Uh, and may we live for you. Amen.